that attachment to blues music and that understanding of hip hop as part of blues music. To me, I hear that in the music I make now. Yeah. Like I, I think I make music like a blues and rap fan. Hello and welcome to Where the Living Room Used to Be, a podcast about Rhode Island's music scene. Hey everyone, it's James. So getting to talk with B. Dolan was a ton of fun. We dove into a lot of things, uh, from how he got into rap music to uh, his creative and recording process. Uh, we talked about some of his activism work, uh, the start of Epic Beardman with Sage Francis, and up to what he's doing now to stay afloat and stay connected with his fans uh, during this time that he can't tour. If you enjoyed the episode, uh, please leave a rating or review wherever you're listening right now. And though we'll go on to discuss the evils of Facebook and Instagram, you can follow me there using the handle at livingroomutb for some show flyers, photos, and more from B. Dolan's time in music. I grew up in Esmond, which is Smithfield, on on the side of Centerdale, in the little village area. Um... My parents got married. They lived at the Lebon V apartments. I grew up on Patricia Circle across the street. And yeah, the nearest factory was th- three minutes down the road, which was the Benny's Warehouse where my dad worked. Yeah. And uh, my aunt worked at Mine Safety, which was the factory right next to it. And uh, yeah, I grew up there. And yeah, kind of came up there and went to school in Providence and kind of became aware of rap music through just random random moments, random occurrences, random like, I was born in 81. So Esmond in 1981 was like a metal area. Like oh, yeah. when I grew up around a lot of like Megadeth, Metallica, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, hair metal kids, like <laughs> hip hop was not really there, you know, mm-hmm. in any real way. Um, then when I went to school, I would, you know, I encounter a couple people that, had you know had like a method man tape or had like a biggie Smalls tape or had later had dj clue tapes um but it was definitely hip-hop was not the dominant thing around me so i would just like hang on to these little (laughs) pieces of what i could find and i pretty much stayed in my room from (laughs) most of my childhood like i just like you know barricaded myself with books and music and just kind of grew up there yeah, yeah. kind of surrounded by a lot of stuff that was not like what I was into, but I was on some escapist shit. I was uh, a I weird gotcha. little kid. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what else were you listening to? Were you listening to like heavy metal stuff just because it was around or like what was your uh, I started family with, listening to? Yeah, I started with my parents' like record collection. Um, but I was really, really into Michael Jackson as a young wow. kid, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I was the first kid. Um, on either side of the family. Um, so I just got a ton of attention 
from a big Italian family. They were, and so they would like give me a spoon for a microphone and put me up on the table. And I would like sing Michael Jackson songs uh, at a very young age. My grandmother made me like a glove <laughs> with glitter yeah. on it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so they encouraged this. And uh, I was just very into music. I was also uh, very weirdly preoccupied with my own death as a kid. Uh, due oh, really? to, yeah, my, I had the same name as my father and his father. And uh, when I was uh, four, they took me to see my grandfather's grave because he died before I was born. And I understood when I looked down at the grave that it was my name on the grave. <laughs> and I really thought as a kid that they had brought me to show me where they were going to bury me. And wow. it's, that's my first childhood memory. That's literally when I think back to the first, the moment my brain blinked on, that is the first memory I think of. So I, like I said, I was a weird kid. I was very into like Stephen King novels. I was reading them in like first and second grade and shit. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was a loner and uh, yeah, I was old for my age. The type of kid that people say, you know, he's a, you were born old. Oh. Um, so, so, I mean, I, I had friends and we had good times in Esmond. We played around at the sand dunes. Yeah. Attacked people with slingshots. Um, but, <laughs> <laughs> but, through it all, I was weirdly preoccupied with dark subject matter and uh, groove-oriented music. <laughs> and then yeah. at a certain point, I heard Scarface, The Diary. Yeah, and man. I think I was about 12 years old, and an older cousin played it for me. And um, I like that was what made me want to be a writer. It's a, it, and I still listen to that album. It's a great album. Um, but it's dark as hell. <laughs> it's, you know, by this like gangster rapper from Houston. Uh, but it's full of like really poignant material. And it is kind of, it sounds like a, a Stephen King novel in <laughs> of the yeah, streets. Like you know? Yeah. Uh, a lot of like hood depression, a lot of like, cause, cause life has no meaning, you know, just, he would just say things like that. It would be like, yeah. And I was tw at 12, somehow yeah. that really spoke to me. <laughs> and, uh, and yeah, I just developed this like fixation with rap music, whatever I could find. I just like squirreled away and like played until the tape wore out. And I used to mess with my parents' stereo equipment. They had like a tape to tape machine. And I was, I remember I had like uh, the Prince Batman song from the Batman soundtrack. Yeah. And there was a, there was a joint on there that was like, it was basically sample. It sounds like when I listen to it now, like a sampler keyboard, they just made it with like an early sampler keyboard, but there's like stuttered vocal samples. And, and I, I made like a, a pause tape with it on the dual cassette thing. Like I somehow met, remember like using the dub function to loop it into an yeah. instrumental. Um, so I was, I would just like mess with stereo equipment. Uh, yeah. I had an uncle that had a drum set. He gave me, he gave me like some minor drum lessons and my mom to make extra money on the side was a piano teacher. Mm -hmm. um, but I could never learn to play piano from her. I couldn't like be instructed. Yeah, yeah, I just, it was too, like, it's your mom. You know, yeah. like, so it's just like another, like your mom standing over you going like, no, no, no. <laughs> not conducive. Uh, <laughs> but my whole childhood on the other side of the wall, thin wall, I would just hear like a, uh, shitty version of like Mary had a little lamb <laughs> at the beginning. Yeah. and then like when no one was in the house I would just like play with the piano mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah so 
very little like musical training, but mu- music was around uh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then I had a, I had a friend whose dad was a, probably a hippie and he put us on to like Led Zeppelin and Pink Floyd and stuff when we were in like fourth grade. And I, some, I attribute it only to Led Zeppelin because I can't think of how else I f- would have found myself in the music store looking for blues music. But I, I'm pretty sure at some point someone told me like, Led Zeppelin, if you like that, that's blues. You should go listen I to blues you. music. <laughs> so in that same Lincoln Mall music store is where I started buying like a blues record and a hip hop record every time I could go there. And the first blues record was John Lee Hooker. Mm-hmm. And so I was uh, hugely into the blues. <laughs> yeah. you know, like, um, I was discovering blues music at the same time I was discovering rap music to, by total random again, like whatever the cover looks like. And sometimes yeah. it's, you know, um, but, and weirdly, like, I think that that came back around too, like that, that attachment to blues music and that understanding of hip hop as part of blues music. To me, I hear that in the music I make now. Yeah. Like I, I think I make music like a blues and rap fan. <laughs> yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. But also, you know, like the, I mean, once I, I mean, the next part of the story was me moving to New York, uh, in yeah. when I turned 18 and, uh, starting to perform there and, I dropped out of school with a group of designers and cats who were in the streetwear at the time. And when I got to New York, it was, it was what I had been looking for. I thought for a while, which was like the place that everyone had come to with their best idea Mm -hmm. and the spirit of rap music, especially at that time was all about innovation. And there was a, in fact, like one of the cardinal sins of hip hop was biting. Like yeah. you never wanted to steal someone else's idea or have your cover look like someone else's cover or, and, and that, that was like, that was the thing to be avoided at all costs to the point where I, I think I even inhibited myself as an artist earlier on because I was so on that shit that I was like, I'm not, I can't even bite from myself. If I've done it on one song, I'm not doing it on the next song. You know, like have just be reinventing the wheel every time. But yeah. Yeah. Cause it's style and flow and everything like that too. Yeah. Yeah. So I definitely like I, my grandmother was a tailor and I credit her with where it came from. She can see the flaw (laughs) in the perfect thing. She could see the flaw. And I have that gene, I'm pretty sure. And I, I definitely apply a level of perfectionism to, to, yeah. to that. This, that, that thing, that, that physical thing that we're going to make and take around the world and say, like, mm-hmm. this is us for this period of time. I go, yeah. I go hard. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's still, that's part of the craft, though, is like figuring out when something is done, how yeah. not to overthink things, but not to underthink things. And yeah, finding the sweet spot of being able to, because that, that that's where you go from artist into like commodity to a degree. Like once you start doing this professionally, especially if you want to bring a great stage show and you want to really deliver and make something special happen for fans, what that starts to equate to is more and more people that you hire and more and more people that you work with and more and more people that 
depend on you, like the yeah. person who prints the t-shirts, who drives the tour van, who the publicist, the, you know, there starts to be a group of people, a record label, although my rec- not to say Strange Famous has done this, but they've actually done the opposite of this. They let me finish my projects. But for many artists, like this is where it starts to, success starts to equal like, okay, we'll do it again. Like, are you done yet? Are you done yet? Do, you know, yeah. just hurry up. We got yeah, everyone. Point. Everyone wants to tour this year. Annual cycle of like, all right, you bought out, you bought out the record that took you a year to record. Then you go tour it for a year, and then you record for the next. You know, and it's just yeah. in and out basically. But there's no. Yeah. Yeah. And as an artist, that feel that can be really overwhelming, and it can can scare a lot of people, and it can make some people shut down, and some people just start forgetting why they do what they do and what's good about what they do. And yeah. Or they yeah. can yeah take a complete left turn and put out some records that are just because they you know feel that anxiety and they're like we don't want to be this anymore so we're gonna change our sound and then you know I, I've had that happen with as a fan and be like what is this yeah. thing you know like I would have rather had you just take another year and like put <laughs> something out that I maybe like yeah. a little bit more than this thing that you're just like trying to give a middle finger to your label for you know um, yeah yeah just so. yeah well we're sensitive types we get, <laughs> get exposed to industry and it's it can break some of us for sure yeah yeah um but when did you start rapping so yeah when i was here in scarface when i was 12 i started kind of writing my first like little verses in notebooks but i was also writing lots of other stuff i had been reading super avidly as a kid so i wrote like what i thought were books (laughs) i wrote like 100 page stories and and then i also when it came to books, I kind of just had what I had, <laughs> what I could get passed down. So I had a copy of, uh, my uncle was slightly older than me and he had graduated high school and he had his like English copy of Hamlet. And I used to read Hamlet all the time. And I really fucking dug Hamlet. <laughs> I still yeah. do. And I would like read it out loud to myself. And then I would like write scenes, not like Shakespeare, but like that was the only performance uh training <laughs> i had at okay. any point out you know like uh because when i moved to new york at 18 i kind of just like stepped on stage i i went to a local like open mic thing and then someone told me about the new Eurekan poets cafe in uh the lower east side and that which is a kind of a famous slam venue hip-hop venue and they had the wednesday night open mics which then led to like a friday night competition and kind of from the first times I got on stage on a Wednesday, um, I mean, A, I'm sure it was like, who is this crazy ass giant, like bearded white dude <laughs> coming here doing like, doing like four minute poems when there's like a, the ni- a three minute time limit or so. Yeah. I was just, and, um, yeah. and, but I started winning and I moved on to like semifinal rounds. And then someone told me about the time limit thing and I didn't have anything under the time. But at the same time, uh, this guy named Big Brother Wayne from Def Jam saw me perform and invited me to a Def Jam event to perform for a taping of the Def Poetry Jam. uh, They were taping their pilots at that time. And so I was 18. I had moved to New York because all my favorite rappers lived there. (laughs) And uh, de- someone from Def Jam was talking to me. So I um, instantly, like, we, I dropped out of school. <laughs> I was like, okay, this is it. Here we go. Here's what we came to do. Uh, and then I went to this event, and it was a horrible experience. Everyone was on cocaine. Uh, it was fucking, it, like, I was being taped. No one was telling me what was happening with the tape. 
and I was 18 from Rhode Island, like from, you know, Esmond. And yeah, yeah. it's like, everyone's beautiful. Everyone like looks like a model. And uh, I quickly understood, like they, they wanted me to be like an, an Eminem. They were like, you do that like crazy white guy shit. <laughs> like oh, you really? should be more of that. You yeah. should like ease off on the political stuff. And like, they started giving me like pointers on how to change what I did. And I, I left like, okay, that that's never going to work. I can't make music that way. So that was yeah. when I bought a drum machine, bought a laptop, started learning to track my own vocals and figured uh-huh. I had to learn to make my own beats. And yeah, later I would move back to Providence, meet Sage Francis. But that is kind of how I came to the DIY spirit. Yeah. So how long were you in New York for? Like when did you move back to Rhode Island? 99 and I moved back in 2002. Okay. Yeah, so I, I moved back after September 11th, a little while after that. Wow, okay. Um, we kind of bugged out <laughs> in the city. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah we, we didn't really have any understanding that it was going to stop that the attack, because the, the attack on the Twin Towers happened in the Pentagon, and that day it was just like, well, we're at war, like, and we are living in ground zero. And then shortly after there was the anthrax, uh, attacks this, the a- envelopes with anthrax started getting mailed to people all over the city. Yeah. And on nine 11, we had said, you know, I, I was living with a Kenyan family at the time who had grown up witnessing civil war in Kenya. So they also like when they saw tanks and guards on the FDR and, yeah. you know, people with machine guns at the subway stations, they were like, Oh yeah, this is that again. And I'm, you know, and I'm naturally like paranoid inclined anyway. So I was like, it's on. Like we were really making plans for like how we were going to get our people safely out of New York and elsewhere. So I moved back to Providence with my homie. Um, and yeah, we just started again from here. And on the way back, I talked to this guy, Bob Holman from the New Yorkian, who's also a poet and told him I was going to Providence. And he said, oh, you should look up Sage Francis. He's like the only decent poet up there. <laughs> and, okay. uh, and that was how I like came back to Providence. And at the time I wasn't even, I had, I was so disgusted with the Def Jam, uh, New York industry pursuit yep. that I was really just on the activism tip after 9-11. Um, I was really concerned about social justice and feeling like there's an emergency going on and like, mm-hmm. I, I can't depend on art to make enough of a change in the world. I need to actually contribute. Yeah. Uh, that's how I met Sage. I met Sage trying to convince him to go into area high schools <laughs> and perform. Oh, really? Yeah. And we did that for a while. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. Like what was that um, like first interaction like um, with them? It was like, hostile. Was it just... <laughs> it was <Okay>. very hostile. <laughs> <laughs> what do you mean? Like you just, it was just like, who are you and what do you want me to do? Or was yeah. it uh, like, yes, exactly. All right. <laughs> yeah. Cause this was, um, <laughs> this was my first thing. This is the first thing I ever did as an activist and my life as an activist has paralleled my life as an artist where it's a, it's not like you just like flip a switch and you are it and you're perfect and everything's great. It's just, it's, you know, it's like if you tried to learn to paint, you know, for a while you would just not be good at it. And you, you know, and you might be that as an activist, you have to, you know, like you might fail a couple of times and you definitely might burn yourself out. And that's what I did. So I, I came back and, and it's about like figuring out where you fit in and what kind of work you can do. So I came back to Providence and I was really thinking about, 9-11 on a very human scale. Yeah. Uh, 
and thinking about the bombers actually and what what does your life have to be like for you to willingly sign up to go kill yourself for for someone else's like idea and and how little value do you have of your own life and then i was thinking about like a, people signing up for the military and or the NYPD in droves and just like wow everybody all these young people are just signing up to go die on either side of this conflict that's going to i i knew at the time <laughs> like everybody knew at the time that was the or not everybody but a lot of people knew at the time there were millions of people protesting the Iraq war before it ever even started yeah yeah um and so we knew what this was, but I was thinking about just people without value of themselves and how art can help people have value of themselves. So when I came back to Providence, I started this effort to go into area high schools, do a performance, connect with like a cool faculty member. And then the kids who like gravitated to us from that performance, they would have like weekly meetups with the faculty member where basically just like you'd come, each club had their own name that they'd give themselves. And it was just like the artsy kids. It was this, like someone would come play guitar, someone would read a slam poem they wrote, someone would, and it was just like a little incubator to, to like insulate people against like their high school. <laughs> like yeah, just provide yeah. like Except a plate. Yeah. yeah. What wasn't there for me in high school, basically. And, um, and it also ended up like connecting a lot of those people back to the arts community in ways that I didn't even expect. Like the engineer who worked with me on the vault score we met us because me and Francis performed at his at South Kingston High School where he was a student as a teenager. My engineer, um, BS3K, who's who's engineered every album since House of Bees 2, was also at South Kingston High School at that time. So it, it brought a lot of people out into the scene who are still in the scene. Yeah, yeah. Um, it just wasn't sustainable. I just didn't, I was one person trying to like drive around between various high schools and like keep appointments with teachers and coordinate. And, yeah. um, so, but that's a, we certainly a lot of like lifelong friends and members of the Rhode Island arts community. Yeah. The Open the mics project was the name of it. And so anyway, so I was asking Francis to be part of that and yeah. I sent him an email and he blew me off and he, he treated me like some random dude. He's like, what if he's like, if you take me to a high school, I'm just going to swear at the teachers and then, you know, do all the stuff I wanted to do in high school and then yeah. leave. And, um, so I, I was like, I'm going to have to go show this Sage Francis asshole that I am not a chump. I'm going to go to his local poetry slam and I'm going to beat him at his own slam. And then like, uh, so I, I literally walked into AS220 in like 2002 was like, where is Sage Francis? <laughs> like point, him, point him out like that him. That's him. Okay. <laughs> and we continued to have an adversarial relationship for a couple of years until, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, it was begrudging respect. We should, we, we ended up on the same slam team that year. And then, uh, yeah, we, we, uh, <laughs> we acted like territorial males for a couple of years. <laughs> and then, uh, then we made the nomore.org website together. And that's when we kind of became friends working on that. Yeah. Together. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about um, that since you just brought it up? The, the yeah. That was created in 2005. In 2004, I was working on the John Kerry campaign, trying to defeat George Bush mm -hmm. and uh, George W. Bush. And it was a particularly soul-draining experience to, to, to have swallowed a lot of uh, resentment about the, the DNC candidate. 
Uh-huh. And to, you know, it's like anybody but Bush. It's very similar to the situation we're in now. Really, it's like yeah, yeah. We, well, we've got to get rid of this guy so badly that it does yeah. not matter who if if it's a little if it's a sentient potato on the on the other side, he gets the vote. Uh, and I had been campaigning in the nearest swing state in New Hampshire, and and just like trying to compete, convince people of this. And then so when it was over, I was super dejected and uh, like really also feeling the emergency. Like having come from New York, nine eleven, the George W. Bush years were as intense as the Donald Trump years in some ways. Um, not with the effects of what's gone on, but we we knew. <laughs> you know, like this is the thing I keep coming back to. But this is not surprising if you've been following the thread of where this country's been drifting for my entire adult life. But uh, so yeah. We were in a state of emergency. George Bush had just been reelected, and we were thinking about the other ways in which people vote and, and the way that you vote every time you spend money and that no one really has the time to compile all the information about what goes into your cheeseburger or your Gap clothing or the gas you put in your tank. But if you really dig into any one topic, I had read Fast Food Nation at the time. Mm-hmm. And was just like, oh, wow, you know, the workers at the meat factories, the workers at the potato factories, the actual franchise owners, like this is how this company is messing with all these different areas. They're messing with workers. They're messing with arguably with kids via their advertising and their fat content and all this stuff. And it, mm-hmm. it was, a, you know, seeing the way one company is affecting the world. Um that, that was the idea was that there, there should be a website where you can enter the name of any brand product or company and get like the whole rap sheet on who they are, what they do. Yeah. And that's what no more was. So we created it and we would rate every company for workers' rights, human rights, environmental concerns, business ethics, political influence. We told you who they gave money to. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, it existed for about 10 years right now. It's actually in the process of coming back. There's a bunch of activists and programmers working on it on our discord server. Um, and we're hoping to relaunch it before the year's over. That's awesome. Um, and yeah, we worked on that together. Sage basically bankrolled the first version of the site and his fans were the initial wave of volunteers. Um, we profiled the entire global fortune 500. We got in a widely publicized battle with American apparel and outed their CEO for sexual harassment. Um, he doesn't work there anymore. He ended up losing the company. I testified in a deposition against him. We had a, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that was no more.org. Yeah. Well, it's sounds like it's making a resurgence. I mean, it's, you know, has there been any adjustments with what's kind of happening even now? Like what has happened over the, the last couple of months? Has there been any kind of trajectory of like, uh, I mean, obviously Amazon is, uh, yeah. they are, you know, but now Amazon has become an even, bigger giant over the last couple of months, you know, and I mean, I know that you recently talked to, you know, like an Amazon warehouse uh, employee and, um, but just like other companies, Zoom, you know, like that we're talking on right now, like they were probably a little, you know, blip on the radar, but now they're this powerhouse, you know, so are you like, you know, expanding the the, the list of companies for what's happening in this COVID-19 world now? Yeah, uh, for sure. And that's, that's part of what's kind of exciting about the relaunch of it is it is a chance to like rebrand it and refocus it. And at the time we started that website in 2005. So that was before the, 
that was three years before the 2008 financial collapse. Mm -hmm. That was before Occupy Wall Street, before, you know, like there's been a big shift in global consciousness, I think, since then in, uh, in understanding what we were talking about, which was basically like the intersectionality of all these different fights the fights for net neutrality, the fights against the prison industrial complex. The, in some cases, you've got the same telecom company building prisons that is also being fought by internet activists, or you've got the same company poisoning water and being fought by environmental activists that's being fought for workers' rights. And you know, so yeah. lots of different organizations are fighting the same companies. Um, and, and the same people because wealth has become even more concentrated now in the, in the post COVID world, certainly it's, uh, there's a moment or there has been a moment where a lot of lip surface has been paid to essential workers. Um, and a lot of essential workers have been asking for things that are just basic, just like paid sick leave, Mm -hmm. protective gear and, you know, and things that really will keep everyone safe. And the problems with COVID are, you know, COVID is just exposing a lot of existing problems with the whole model that our economy and our country is built on, which is like instant gratification, constant, you know, constantly showing the maximum profit margin, short-term returns, never mind what happens in a month, never mind what's left in five years. Um, that's been the model. Yeah. And yeah, here, here we are. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we're bringing it back. Um, and with a focus on, yeah, no more, never profile tech companies. So Facebook, Uber, Grubhub, all those companies, I'd love yeah. to see, you know, some no more profiles on them. Um, Amazon for sure. Yeah. That's the big one. Um, and yeah, so we're, we're definitely retooling it, thinking less about ethical consumerism maybe this time and more about um, just kind of the broader goals of controlling corporations. They die to realize it But the fire falls mostly on their eyelids Scarred wrists they hit They mimic faces of death I see them sway from the nets Above academy steps Whisper atrocities And pay the debt And cadets hold their desks Over their heads not fearing death At 15 Riot and get ripped in closets Full of empty beds The team huddles To muffle screams They hunt the access in your black hole It makes your frame collapse Phone drop into your future addiction Hey, you wanna Uh, my career, I, I released my first album through Strange Famous in 2008. So that was my first proper release. And that was before Spotify in this kind of like void where people were just not paying for music, really. And those were like the Wild West years of my career anyway, where it was just like, well, uh, stay on tour forever, I guess. Yeah. And that, you know. And that's selling records at shows, basically. Yeah, but, I mean, yeah. shows at records will always sell if you have a, a great live show. Um, yeah. So I learned that early, and I learned that from Sage, who brought me on my first tour in 2005. I just worked merch for him just to see, because he, he really had to do a lot of convincing. Again, I was on my activist tip, and he's trying to <laughs> convince me. He's like, you can inspire a lot of people as a performer, too. You should put out your music. I was like, ah, 
I, I got to do the same song every night. <laughs> that was, that was the yeah. You're biting uh, yourself from, you know, yeah, biting from myself. Saturday. Yeah. I'm biting this guy, B. Dolan. That's I just real. heard this last night. Oh, that yeah. was me? Shit. <laughs> no, I was not with it. Uh, I, was, I just didn't understand. Um, but yeah, he eventually brought me into the circus life. And, uh, <laughs> but he had seen me perform and he knew I could perform. And so if you can, I mean, that's what I have relied on for my entire career up to this point was it doesn't matter if I don't have the same publicity budget. It doesn't matter, you know, if we're just literally doing this ourselves, if if it's just me on tour in a rental car with a suitcase full of merch, I, I can rock the shit out of a party for 90 minutes and I will sell out of merch at the merch table and if I do that for a month on the road, I'll come back with enough to record the next project. And yeah, I mean, for the better part of the last decade, that's what it was. It was just tour, tours, funding projects, funding tours, funding projects. And I was, I'm very happy to exist anywhere in that cycle because I really dig performing and being with fans and being on stage and the live thing and the possibilities of the live thing uh, and then also I like being in the studio and can nerd all the way out and live in there also yeah yeah uh, so yeah but what was it like doing that that first record were you signed to uh strange famous at that time or did you do the record and then I decided to put it out after leaving the scene in New York I had just I bought a laptop and a drum machine and started making my, my own stuff for just not commercial value. I was like, no one's ever going to buy it. <laughs> it's never, it's not going to work in the music industry, but I'm just going to make it and I'll just hand it to people. So I, the first version of the album, I handed to Sage in a jewel case with no cover. And it was just a, like a CD with a scorpion printed on it. And he was like, this is good. I would release this on my label. Uh, and when he said that, I was like, no, no, it's way too shitty. <laughs> you can't do that. <laughs> so, so You're I the only one that turns down getting signed. You I was know? Like, no, no, no. Uh, yeah, I was like, I, I didn't know how the mics worked. I got to do it again. <laughs> uh, and I went, because that first one was like recorded in bathtubs, and I was like really like learning the software. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, how was the scene? Was it supportive uh, for you? It's like early yeah. on when you were doing shows? Or? Yeah, I mean, the scene here was cool it was like as220 was when i came back like as an adult before that i saw a couple of shows at like nick and knees and um but then like when i came back i was properly introduced to like um it was called like providence strikes back it was like mahi mahi lightning bolt and i my first i was in a band called water meets electricity after i left the poetry slam days um and we we would play with like chinese stars and uh and yeah mahi mahi at the time uh fuck else was on oh white mice there on that show um wow so yeah so i i was into oh and that's where the the what cheer brigade that's where i found out about them and that's how like later we all kind of stayed in the mix but even like alec redfern and um i just came back to providence after being in new york and was like man providence is way better I, or, or way like I can understand what's happening here. Like mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't so fucking, you know, commercial, obviously compared to Def Jam or mm-hmm. private art galleries and shit. Um, and I was like, Oh yeah, this is like the type of music I make. <laughs> you know yeah, I, make yeah. I make like punk 
noise rap music or something. Um, so it helped me like understand or feel comfortable in my like providence-ness. And then it was like, all right, well now that's something. And then other people would, would hear the kind of rap we made and be like, oh, okay, there's a sound. And then the sound was really just hip hop plus Fort Thunder, <laughs> you know, yeah. and like with, uh, and how long did you do that band for? Uh, shit. It was only like a year or two. It was, it, uh, two members moved to Denver. I didn't really know what I was doing yet. I was just, I knew I like poetry slam, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. So I was just trying to find new song structures and mm-hmm. it started, you know, I started as like spoken word with ambient electronic stuff and freeform shit and then kind of turned more into traditional hip-hop but with a you know and a lot of that was figuring out like how to get the sound i wanted out of machines like it was just like mm-hmm. i grown up listening to like wu-tang records that were made on sp 1200s with dusty samples and i didn't <laughs> know that so i would be just like applying distortion to everything <laughs> yeah like, yeah no no it doesn't i don't know like um so I had to learn a lot about studio shit. But in the early days, it was just like crank all the fucking knobs and make noise and while out and just fucking, it was way more punk <laughs> like yeah. early on. Yeah. Uh, and then I kind of like tried to maintain elements of that, but fit into form structures or song structures and, you know, mm-hmm. learn more. But yeah, sometimes I I don't think I could go back and make the early albums again. That's that's why because I so much of that was like the sound of me not knowing how the equipment worked. Yeah, and now I know how the equipment works. So it's just not gonna have that rawness. <laughs> yeah, it's not gonna be like that. It's yeah. you know like I would never intentionally do that again. <laughs> yeah. So then by the time I met Sage, I had met other musicians he was working with and producers he was working with. Alias is the one that really like figured out a lot of shit with would take my vocal tracks and like turn them into something great he was one of the first uh and so he was on the the failure that i put out in 2008 reanimator helped so sage kind of executive produced that first album of like here you and reanimator should talk you and alias should talk and introduced me to uh, the producers who i would then work with for the next 10 years Mm -hmm. um and yeah so that was how the first one came about in 2008. And then a series of mixtapes with Buddy Peace, UK producer. That's the House of Bees uh, tapes, which weirdly, I think, introduced a lot more people to me than maybe the official albums. Film the Police and Which Side Are You On were both on House of Bees Volume 2. And both yeah. of those kind of took off. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And then I've been also like learning from producers along the way getting deeper into the craft in the studio and slowly started like producing more of my own beats. And so then in kill the wolf in 2015, I produced entirely with contributions from, you know, drums from buddy peace on this track or, but for the most part that was made with uh, DS three K out of uh, the chamber studios in Warwick. Level 
to step into a nightmare Everything the checkpoint Trying to find right here Right hand of God I'm a goddamn citizen Trace the fingerprint The privilege and the pavement Racial suspicion in the nation of snitches Surveillance is the matrix We are trained to exist in Gamma rays shot through the body Non-fiction Sidewalk stopping for his Barricade box him in Questions asked before we check back Repeated three times And lines present past They want to see documents I had seen Brown Bird open for Rasputina at the Met uh, with a cousin who had brought me to that show. And Dave had seen me open for Sage. Um, and we ran into each other at a taping of a podcast. And I'm really, oh, it's Sully's Corner, um, okay. which was taped at the spot for a bunch of years. Like bands would go in on, during the afternoon and like record a song on stage and then um, Dan would tape an ep- an interview in the corner. So mm-hmm. I was taping in the corner while Brown Bird was on stage. I was like, oh, shit, you Brown Bird's on this episode. So me and Dave ended up like talking in the parking lot. Yeah. And we knew of each other and hit it off. And it was just, uh, you know, we should do something. And then um, Buddy Peace had sent me an instrumental that had samples on it. And he said it, it had started out as a remix of Aesop Rock's song, yeah. None Shall Pass. Um, and it was at this like this cool tempo and I was like, we can't use the clarinet sample. We got to lose that. But then we replaced it. And then uh, at a certain point I realized like that I like buck 65 at this tempo. Yeah, he, he raps good at this tempo. As I was figuring out my own cadences, I was hearing other rappers on it mm-hmm. and the chorus, I had originally just rapped the chorus, but I was like, I bet, I bet Dave Lamb could sing this. So I sent it to him. He sent it back one, one email exchange I was like, here, here you go. And uh, killed it. And then the rest of the song kind of came together. I sent it to Aesop because I had kept hearing his uh, cadences on it. So that's how it ended up being uh, myself, Buck 65, Aesop, with Dave Lamb on the chorus. And the guitar on that song is uh, by Warren Borg, who sent in his parts. He was a, a guitarist I toured with in England. Um, I think there's upright bass, Mike Brown. That's why there's a, there are a lot of musicians we brought in for specific parts and replays. That's how we got to like 30 people on the yeah. record. But um, sadly, Dave uh, passed w- while we were working on the song. So at a certain point, it, it like we knew that what this was and mm-hmm. that changed the approach. Mid, you know, I was like, this has to be great. You know, this is the mm-hmm. only chance we get. Unfortunately, he uh, left way too young. Yeah. Rest in peace to Dave Lamb. Yeah. Miss Dave. Love Dave. We broke WBRU's Smash It or Trash It record with that song. They made us stop. They retired the song. Oh, really? Yeah. I And it's <laughs> like, it, I've been upset about it ever since. And then the station closed and I was like, that's what you get. Part of me was like, <laughs> yeah. uh, <laughs> because I, when Kill the Wolf came out, I went there on a mission to BRU um, because I knew like, I didn't do it for that reason, but we ended up with this record that had Dave Lamb on it with, on the track with Aesop Rock that had Roz mm-hmm. Raskin on a hook. Uh, yeah. And I was proud of it. And I was like, this is a Providence record. This record mm-hmm. should be on. And especially since I found out, you know, I know BRU, was a nonprofit. It was part of Brown. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I walked into the station like on a, <laughs> like, what do we have to do? What do we have to do to play the Red Hot Chili Peppers one last time and have you put like some Providence music on the radio? What do you think guys? Yeah. And uh, they're like, well, we got to smash it or trash it thing. We can 
put it on. I was like, what's that? They were like, well, once a night, you know, like we'll at, we'll play your song versus like the latest clear channel <laughs> single or whatever. Uh-huh. And if, if people vote it, if it has enough listener support, it'll be playlisted. And I was like, okay. Um, and we won, we won like 30 nights in a row. We, just, <laughs> we kept just telling people like, here it is again. And we just kept winning. And eventually they were, they were just like, well, we, we're going to retire the song. Like we, we broke a station record for wins and smash it or trash it with jailbreak. And yeah. then they're like, it's retired from the contest. And occasionally I think they'd play it, but cracking the heavy rotation at WBRU was harder than that. I never, I never got the magic key, I guess. Sun the lights out, days in a hole. Might wonder quite how I stayed in control. Tracing my name in the face of the stone that I might tunnel right out under their nose. When the keyhole planks and the man comes, do you crawl on all fours or stand up? I am upright, I am smiling. I'ma get off this fucking island. Drag me out into the moonlight where the wall is all around. The good men are all in their bed. The undead are all underground. Work through the night to the break of day. I've been digging a hole the old-fashioned way. I got blood on my knuckles and rock. To crack when you tunnel this far, snow stopping that. Snow slowing down and snow doubling back. Gotta go to ground and get a hold of a map. Side stroke toward hope where the ocean crashes. It may go down, but I can't go backwards. Uh, bars calling on cars. Hacks in the rowboat, caught them off guard. Right in the yard when you hear the bell. Better face toward heaven and run like hell. So how did uh, Epic Beardman come together? I mean, obviously you've known Sage for, for years, but how long had you guys been kicking around the idea of doing something as a duo? And Yeah, since, since we met at the Poetry Slam, people, have been, people had been telling us when we were in the, in the world of Poetry Slam, they were like, you should do group pieces. <laughs> that was, that was oh, the really? Version. Yeah, yeah. They were like, you two, you kind of look like each other. You should stand next to each other on stage. Uh, <laughs> and yeah. we'd always kind of been like, yeah, all right. And, uh, but, but like part of our mutual respect for each other was in acknowledgement of the other's same obs- obsessive tendencies. Like when I was saying, you know, my grandmother can see the flaw, like Sage is that person also. Mm-hmm. He's got a song called Mainstream 305 because it was take 305 of his vocals. <laughs> like, wow. Yeah, yeah, his vocal recording process, I've witnessed it, it's, it's intense. So it was never, it would always be suggested and it was always be like, yeah, we could do that, we could do that. But it, it was, uh, there was also this like, we, we knew what it really would be like. And it was like that, um, which is, I'm super glad I did it. I learned a lot doing it. Um, but it was also, you know, like going into it, it's like making an album is like, there's, there's a split in your personality between a, the creator and then the editor. And like the creator has a ton of fun. It's like being four years old again and just like building a tree fort. 
Yeah. <laughs> and then the editor comes in and just d- destroys everything and like breaks things that you really care deeply about. Mm-hmm. And that's how it has to be to get, you know, each of us individually goes through that whole process by ourselves all the time when we make music. So to combine and subject our, to my four-year-old child to his editor <laughs> and vice yeah. versa, that was the thing of it. That was, so there, there, weren't, there weren't any like fights. We didn't go full like Metallica at any point. <laughs> but, yeah. uh, but it was definitely like a different type of exercise to try and get like two voices to fit into every one song. Yeah. The, the one that was real crazy was shin splints. There's a song on the record that is it, it was a concept in our head for a long time before it was ever realized. And it's a song about us traveling to get to a show where we run into more and more obstacles. And every time we run into an obstacle, the beat speeds up. So it would be an exercise in like fast rap, but it would also be like a storytelling thing about, and it was called shin splints because we were like running through airports and we would get shin splints. And like one of us would have to leave the other behind trying to get to the plane and shit. And, uh, (laughs) and making that song took us a year. And just, wow. just like the engineering of how to figuring out how to make the beat do that and sound good. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and then like writing back and forth, we eventually wrote it in like a shared motel room in Montana, I think. And I remember having to like, I was in the bathroom with the door shut to get space from him. Yeah. That was the hard part. It was just like figuring out how to do it, figuring out how to like write two lines and then stop. And then hand it to somebody else, and then take it back. Uh, it was yeah, that type yeah. of, yeah. We were trying to emulate groups, and it's funny. Like, so we had toured so much together and performed each other's songs with each other. So we we it's we easily can slip in and out of each other's voice. Like, we can do two person two voice raps, um, and there is like a two MC hip hop formula where it's like the golden ratio <laughs> like or like you know is that the three mcs is also dope but you know like you can do the mop the epmd like or the beastie boys like the eh, eh, mm, ah, eh, yeah the, like the back and forth stuff yeah. the tr- tricky stuff but when it's we went to write them we were like how did they do that? <laughs> did Ad Rock really just write one line and then you leave? And then, yeah, MCA or, is like, or, or I did, got it. You know? Yeah, or did MCA write that whole thing and then just go, you do this line, you do this line, you do this line? So we, yeah. like, literally trying to find a workflow. That was the hard part for some songs. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, other songs just came together really great. Uh, I like, I still like a lot of the Epic Birdman songs uh, mm-hmm. as I go back and listen to them. Like Hedges is one that I think like I that could never have been that good as a solo song. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really served by having two different voices on it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it was was that um, you know like more old school kind of style um, as opposed to some of your you know other work? Um, is that like a conscious decision that you made of like we want to try to to do that to kind of have that you know eighties nineties rap you know. Yeah, or I think that's where we naturally, where we naturally kind of drifted with the songwriting because of our probably for a couple reasons. One being, <laughs> we chose the goofy ass name Epic Beard Men, uh, but another being that like in both of our solo work, uh, 
we allow ourselves to go all the way in on some introspective, deeply personal material. Mm -hmm. But then when sharing a track with someone else, especially a hip hop track, it, it didn't usually make sense to write that kind of song and then pass the mic. Yeah. <laughs> it's, like, yeah. it's not like you don't want to hear me talk about the trauma in my life. And then, eh, well, if you got two talented rappers on stage, you might as well have some fun and watch them yeah. like do some, do some backflips and shit. And uh, so, and I think it was partly that and partly our actual friendship and the fact that we, have kept each other sane and laughing through more than a decade of touring together. So we naturally, like, we don't let each other go down deep, dark holes when, when we're around each other. And we wrote most of that material while living in a um, shared apartment at the Fringe Festival in Scotland two years in a row. We went there and performed for 30 days in a row in Edinburgh and lived in an Airbnb. So we would, that's where we would write. We would like go into our separate bedrooms, write a bunch of shit, meet in the living room, show each other what we wrote, go back, work, work some more. So that's where we made all the demos yeah. in Scotland. Um, and yeah, it was just a good time. <laughs> and then, and touring it was a good time because those shows were fun. It, it ended up being like really fun material, um, really like excited, happy crowds and people that also seemed happy for us that we were looking like we were having fun on stage <laughs> around for, the, for the first time maybe ever for some people like oh shit he's smiling uh, <laughs> and it was it was a good uh three-year cycle of releases and shows cool and uh i guess actually you know one thing that it was was there an epic beardman video game yes yeah we made a video game yeah, yeah. what was that about i guess yeah, that was a weird one. It was uh, that concept started as Francis's. He had um, when we first got to Edinburgh, we put a pizza box on the wall and wrote on it in Sharpie. All this, we just took, opened our song concept text file and just we were like, "Oh, I had this idea for this thing, and this could be an Epic Beardman song." Or this, and uh, and so one of them was Five Hearts, and one of them was a tribe called Side Quest. Those were two of Francis's <laughs> ideas. <laughs> and he was like five hearts you know like in zelda like when you're down to like two hearts and you got to get back up to five hearts and he's like i had this this chorus mm -hmm. and uh and we found a, a verse that fit it well and we just ended up writing this song his was all about his verse is a lot of uh video game metaphors for needing replenishment kind of mm -hmm. and from my verse that was one where i deviated i know and and like he he would always be like i didn't know you were gonna fucking do that on that song um <laughs> <laughs> he's like i thought you know i was just gonna be like a throwaway joint and then you fucking um but yeah i just found this like really cool pocket of it and i got really excited about just thinking about video games and uh and i wasn't i guess i wasn't a, like a hardcore gamer guy ever but i played video games I definitely spent many hours in front of computer screens and my parents were like, you're rotting your brain. And, uh, and in thinking back on it, I was like, no, actually, I think I was like learning really advanced problem solving <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and 
teaching my training my brain to like just keep hammering away at problems while making small adjustments and i think it actually like opened up areas of my brain and uh and that's what my verse is about and also at a certain point i started doing like tricky shit with my cadence to make uh, to make it like a like a tricky a b a b up down up down <laughs> i started doing the lyrical equivalent of that yeah. <laughs> and uh it turned and then oh and then uh this musician we work with adam schneider we worked with him on kill the wolf a lot he does like chip tune music for video games and he gave us this crazy epic outro where just we had like a real game soundtrack at the end mm-hmm. and it was like shit we should make a video game and then six months later <laughs> 60,000 emails later, we had a video game. <laughs> and uh, yeah, when we dropped that song, we dropped it with a video game instead of a video. Uh, and it's still online. It's fun. You can play either myself or Sage, and it's like a Streets of Rage style run around, <laughs> beat people up kind of game. Yeah. Yeah. Five hearts. Forgotten hours, glued to the cube with the view with the towers. Came up soon in the room with a gun and a glove. Fucking with mushrooms and flowers. Heaven to hell will reverse. Cycles of death and rebirth. I'm on a search, call it a quest. I can play the game, but I ain't obsessed. Yeah, wish to continue the mission within you. The shit you will live through conditions. A critical digital child, chosen one. Pass the control, let me show you some. Set the high score where you don't want to try no more. Better be ready to die in a war and regenerate endlessly. Expertly mashing the buttons, adjusting the methods. So suddenly, suddenly crack it and mask it. So, you know what? The mass destruction of my youth was fucking beautiful. Sheltered from the climate. Climbing side and hiding Rubik's Cube Solve the riddle room to room to make it out the house Had to choose my next adventure Had to get up off the couch Won't you take me to the lake? I'm trying to save the game and bounce Now the B is for brain damage From gaming with sage phrases Which way is the lake? Damn it, the answer's in doubt Can you talk a little bit more about Strange Famous? And, um, you know, from an outsider's view It seems like it's a pretty big family, you know? I don't know if that's the case or not But it's... Um, it seems like it's that, you know, like it's seems kind of tight knit. And, uh, yeah. Yeah. It's pretty accurate. Uh, it's Sage's label that he started, um, in order, uh, basically no one else wanted to release his recordings or, you know, and I'm, he kind of came up against a similar wall when confronted by the, the hip hop music mm-hmm. industry at large. Um, and so he just started his own imprint and started releasing things in the mail. Yeah. Uh, accepting cash in the mail and <laughs> mailing out viewers. Uh, and yeah, later turned it into a proper functioning label. Um, but it is definitely, I mean, for the most part, anybody that's putting out releases on Strange Famous is someone that we've probably met in our travels and or done some shows with yeah. at the very least. And then on the other end of that is people like Alias and Sage and myself and Storm Davidson, you know, that's like, you're going to be in my wedding type family. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> sure. Yeah. Also. Um, and yeah, it's, uh, I mean, they've always given me a great deal <laughs> from the beginning and, uh, you know, like it's not, uh, I mean, it's a different path in the music industry. It's mm-hmm. the one I know about. I don't know about the, 
track in the music industry where you go from like having a SoundCloud page to playing at the Grammys to hanging out with Beyonce. I don't know how that works, but (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I think massive amounts of money get injected at various points and you get funneled through a corporate thing. But the thing about that to me was always, well, if they give you that at any point, then they have the power to take it away immediately afterwards. You don't have any, you don't have, you don't own anything. You don't have any shit. Um, And coming up under Francis and watching how he structured his business, his touring business, his online interactions, all that, it just made it clear, like if you work hard at this stuff, you don't need that other shit. You, and if your show is good, you can literally just hand to hand and show to show, meet other artists who will bring you on their tours and bring you to their cities and mm-hmm. uh, meet other producers, exchange shows with people. So we just, traveled for lots and lots of years and in certain cities would meet certain really talented people who we continue to work with. Uh, and so, yeah, it's kind of a, it's not a label that's actively a and or trying to acquire new artists or break new artists or anything like that. It's more like a place where, um, if there's a certain standard of quality, um, and a certain willingness by the artist to work, cool shit can happen and it's an imprint that people recognize and has weight Mm -hmm. so which is like a lot for a label to be at this point in 2020 and i mean post-covid everything's different (laughs) you know like um i've definitely like switched to this patreon discord twitch life real heavy and that's kind of working out well too and it's actually helping yeah energize things around the label it's a new a new model so like the music industry keeps changing but <laughs> the, the family stays together <laughs> mm-hmm. i i know that some of that transition has also been you've been pretty vocal about facebook and instagram and all that yeah. other kind of <laughs> yeah shit um so yeah i mean can you kind of talk a little bit about about that you know and uh you know what you're up to now like patreon and then how people can support you and you know where to check out your you know, live streams and, and, you know, how you're adapting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at a certain point, I, during the Epic Beard mentoring started to really pay attention to Facebook and analytics and all this stuff that people had been talking to me about as we were getting ready to release the Epic Beard Men albums. Um, and for the first time we looked at Facebook ads and buying Facebook ads around tours. And it was a weird time cause everybody I knew, that had been touring for a living, it was kind of telling me the same thing when I went to go there to their shows. It was like, wow, our attendance is down or it's weird. I don't know. I don't know what happened. Like maybe we fell off. <laughs> you know, like people would, people were kind of in their feelings a little bit. And so we started the Epic Beard Mentor and we started like to, to only buy ads for shows where there was a door deal. Like since the traditional logic would be sometimes there's a guarantee, sometimes there's a door deal. If there's a guarantee, the promoter's on the line, so he's going to work hard to promote the show. If there's a door deal, you get what you get. You might want to put a little extra behind that one. Mm -hmm. So we were purchasing Facebook ads for the door deals, and we started to realize that the door deal shows were doing better than the guaranteed shows, which meant that by buying Facebook ads, we were promoting better than the promoter was even able to. And these were instances where the promoter was really trying, and we were realizing like, he didn't buy enough Facebook ads. Yeah. And we started to realize that they were really suppressing anything that said buy ticket 
link um, and making you pay for it. And the same yeah. thing with YouTube. Everybody's YouTube numbers all of a sudden went way down. It was like, what the fuck happened? Did people just stop watching? It was like, no, YouTube made monetized. And now you have to boost your YouTube video also. So all these uh, platforms that we had spent years driving people to after mm-hmm. MySpace, it was, you know, we had great followings on MySpace. And then it was like, oh, we're not doing this Facebook thing. And then we get to Facebook late and had to really hustle the Facebook pages for a while. Like, it, yeah. oh, we need a Facebook banner on our webpage. And then we drove everybody to Facebook. And now Facebook makes indie artists really pay. And so I started investigating and talking to people as I traveled. And I was finding promoters, some promoters are hip to it, some promoters weren't. The promoters who were hip to it in cities like LA were already paying $1,000 in Facebook ads just to promote like a 500 capacity rap show. And they were like, it's the only way to get people out because otherwise they just suppress it. Whoever's advertising something, your, your fans will not see it. So we were already on the tip of like, we have to get off Facebook and not to mention the fact that Facebook is an evil, (laughs) shitty, toxic uh, presence in our mental environment, arguably destroying democracy, uh, helping Donald Trump win reelection, you know, fuck Facebook from the bottom of my heart. Uh, Let's get off Facebook. So that was the plan before the COVID thing. And we were like, discord is this cool platform that gamers use. But it's super helpful for coordinating people across different types of interest. And it allows you to bring in outside links. It gives people like permission roles. It's based on Slack, which a lot of people use in their business life. It's got voice channels, text channels, and it looks like an old school message board. And it exists outside of any algorithm. So because it's for gamers who are all like coordinating with each other on like when to raid villages and shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you can't say, I actually, you know, user X can't see this because, you, yeah. know, you know, boosted. It's like, it's just for communication, basically, right? Yeah, you, so you can type at everyone mm-hmm. or you can type at no more project and just hit everyone that cares about the no more project or at new releases or, um, and so it's great for like, it's built a community. we got about like 700 people signed up for it, about like three or 400 actively use it like online poker in one channel and when the pandemic hit and everyone was ordered to stay at home for two months um it really kind of jumped off and became a community Mm -hmm. uh centered also around the weekly live streams which i started doing twice a week Mm -hmm. um so i'm on twitch on tuesdays and thursdays for an hour just hanging out slowly figuring out all this streaming equipment (laughs) and the other thing i've been doing a lot uh, is playing Minecraft with my eight-year-old nephew who I'm quarantined to park from and can't hang out with. And I learned how to play Minecraft and learned you can do all types of things in, in Minecraft, including build a music venue. And okay. actually, like right before this interview, I was in Minecraft with two fans and we had built, we had moved this, this virtual venue I've built onto a server. So I think we're going to have a Minecraft rap show. Like... There'll be a virtual event that you can watch on Twitch. I'll be performing, but you'll see me as a Minecraft character in a Minecraft venue that I've built. And if you play Minecraft, you can log in and virtually have your little character in the game and run around and explore the venue. Wow. And yeah. So working on a Minecraft rap show. Well, that's awesome. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and, uh, and that's all like come together through the Discord and the Patreon. 
I finally, yeah. like, that was the other thing when I realized like world tour dates were canceled. I canceled over like 30 dates when, uh, mm-hmm. it was announced that everything was shutting down. Uh, it was like, okay, well this Patreon thing, this little discord thing that we were kind of going to do in the background looks like it's going to be everything now. Um, yeah. And pretty quickly, like a number of fans responded. There's about 77 people signed up so far. It's enough to pay my mortgage every month. And it's actually starting to be enough where we're manufacturing exclusive merch every month. So that's given our t-shirt guys some more stuff to do and label some more stuff to do because our touring really, you know, the production of merch and all that stuff means money in a lot of people's pockets through the year. So, yeah, yeah. So we're able to just you, you know? Yeah. So this is the latest like transformation of what it is now. It is like this new way, but yeah, people keep riding with us and are loyal. You know, I think that's the difference between that other track I was talking about and ours is people feel really connected to us. Like they found out about us. Yeah. Personally, they shook our hand. They bought the CD. Yeah. They hang out for a decade. Yeah. I mean, not everyone is going to be interested in subscribing for $10 a month in order to see, you know, exclusive this or that or get, you know, merchandise, but some people are. Mm -hmm. And those people are essentially like keeping the lights on at this point. Um, And yeah, and it's been inspiring. Uh, And definitely it's been helpful to be connected to people because I also enjoy like, the conversations at the merch booth, there's certain people that I'm used to seeing every year now for one night a year in Bristol, England. (laughs) And, uh, and we talk shit at the merch booth. And I remember you, I remember you from last time we were talking about, you know, and now we have that still just in the discord, you know, so it's keeping music communities together during a crazy time when we're just losing so much as a music community worldwide. Yeah. Yeah, well, just kind of moving on. I mean, I know that you've also, uh, you know, mentioning some of your uh, like film uh, work and stuff like that. Uh, can you talk about that just a little bit and what um, kind of brought you into that realm as well? Yeah, the film stuff is funny. The film stuff was total a total like lark. I meant when I was a kid, I mentioned I had written like plays and books and stuff, and and so I had always like thought of writing movies but you know i was at my music career was happening i was figuring out i basically went from writing you know like theatrical stuff to then like being like now nah, i'll just i'm the actor i'm the i'll just mm-hmm. perform everything i write and then at a certain point michael Carenti, um who made outside of providence and yeah. uh federal hill uh he got a hold of some writing or some writing sample and invited me to write some horror movies. Uh, he wanted to make a horror movie for a million dollars at the time in, in one location. Um, and so he kind of put me on this job and was like, you know, if you come here every day for the next, you know, every weekday, we'll, we'll just hammer out a script. I've got an idea. Or you pitch me some ideas, we'll hammer out a script. I pitched him ideas. He didn't like the ideas. And he had an idea. So he... I, he basically would, we'd sit at this writer's table and he would, we'd all discuss like what should happen. And then he would just kind of teach me certain stuff about like setups and payoffs and how movie scripts work. And I was like, all right. Um, and at the time I just 
I was treating it like a writing exercise. My, I was already making my album and this was just a weird thing I had been invited to do. And obviously I knew Michael Carrenti was somewhat of a legit figure and I was like, okay, I'm gonna learn to write movies. Maybe this happens, maybe it never happens. It never happened. I wrote him like three movies um, over the course of like five years. None of them ever got made um, and it kind of dissipated. And then I didn't hear from anybody until I heard from one of the people I had been working with, with Carrenti at the time, Tom DiNucci, called me back a couple years later and was like, hey, are you still writing? And yeah, I was like, yeah. He was like, well, I got this little movie I'm making. It's nothing like, you know, a Carrenti movie. It's not, you know, but, you know, if you can get, get me a script, like here's what I've got location wise and here's the type of story I'm looking for and here's what I, and so that was how we came up with the movie that became Almost Mercy, which came out six years ago, I think. And yeah, it was a low budget horror movie. Uh, but it was, I think, smart for its genre. And uh -huh. we told like a kind of cool little Rhode Island story. We worked in The Legend of Mercy Brown and some cool like Rhode Island stuff. And people liked it. And it was enough that the same company, Verdi Productions, agreed to give us a bigger budget to make a bigger movie, which was Vault. And by then, I had been like, oh, you when they when they made Almost Mercy, I was in shock. I was like, oh my god, you really made, <laughs> you know? Like, yeah, yeah, holy shit, you know? Like they invited me to set, and I wandered around and like met people that were characters. You know, it was really really surreal. And only then did I kind of start to think like this movie thing might be real or legit. <laughs> and uh, and so for Vaults, like it was the first time we were like, okay. Uh, like let's really try and and make a fucking movie here uh and the the story they knew they wanted to tell was the bonded vault uh robbery which is one that i had known of from some family stories that i had heard mm -hmm. growing up and uh it was immediately like a challenge and to to reproduce 1975 provenance and tell a mob story um, it's still an indie movie fault. Mm -hmm. um, and I think people might not have watched it that way because of the actors, you know, they had like Don Johnson and Chaz Palminteri, but like in terms of Tom DiNucci and what he was creating, uh, they, they did most of that movie in a month in the Superman building, um, oh. and, sur and surrounding streets. And, um, yeah, I mean, we, I definitely took liberties. I kind of was like, you know, this is not going to be a documentary. We're just going to kind of, you know, build the legend of Providence and Patriarca yeah. and this heist. And, <laughs> and, um, and yeah, at a certain point too, it was like there were, I, well, I had been working on the Epic Beardman record and I had made, I've since gotten access to like, you know, I've been able to hear a sound in my head for a long time. And I have certain records that I really love from soul jazz era but I finally had found the right musicians and studios to reproduce that stuff. Mm -hmm. And so I, I, during the filming of Vault, I was, I kind of stepped to the producers and was like, I think I can do the score. Um, and I convinced them <laughs> to give me the job. But uh, at that point they, they realized like we were not going to be able to license any music. So there's not, we're not going to be able to buy like the Delphonics song to play. Uh, so, you yeah, are you able to write all the music? So we, at which point I was like, okay, it's going to be like, like a Quincy Jones, like seventies 
heist movie like i will yeah. do like a love score and a you know heist score and all that so we created the music in the space of three months uh and recorded it in about a week um where did you do york, that in new york uh yeah. with chris gilroy who i met at south kingston high school he now works in uh, brooklyn at a studio called douglas recording beautiful studio and yeah we were down there and he knew all the session musicians to call in we had like mm -hmm. Bruce Springsteen and Elvis Costello's horn section come in just for day rates. <laughs> just, and I could just sing to them. Like we were so parent, we, you know, like we were really trying to prepare because the way I made it was real crazy. Like I, w I made it in Ableton, which no one scores movies in Ableton, mm -hmm. but uh, I would import scenes and kind of build the music like a beat knowing that then we'd be in the real studio with musicians with better chops and I could be able to explain it's like this, you know, but, uh, so that's how the music got written, uh, in that like skeleton form. And so when we, when the horn section was coming in, we were so paranoid about like, well, we need charts for them and we need, we got to print out how the hell. And, uh, they, those guys came in and they were just like, well, you know, we can't really see the movie. And I'm like, I don't want to listen to one. You, you want to just sing to me? And I was like, yeah, okay. So I was just like, bah, you know, they're just singing to these guys. They're like, uh, all right, okay. And then just go like write out their charts in 10 minutes, come back, wow. knock it out in two takes. What else do you want to do? <laughs> you know, like, it was incredible. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, I got to run all these experiments that I've been wanting. Like what if we recorded drums and then ran them to tape and then back, could we get that like saturated sound from drum break oh, and stuff like yeah. that? So yeah, we, we were like on original equipment, original effects and had a fucking blast spent the entire budget they gave me i <laughs> we're gonna sell the score in june and that'll be the first money i make off it but uh it was a huge it was a great learning experience and i own the music also well, that's awesome that's really cool though. yeah yeah shout out to verdi productions for letting me do that <laughs> that was a nice. huge huge learning experience and yeah uh i have another movie with them uh that was originally slated for september and now everything's on hold in the movie industry at the moment. Um, I've been talking about scoring another one for them too and have been now like really taking some workshops, reading some books, bearing down on the art of screenwriting also, which yeah. I've gotten really inspired about <laughs> and you know excited about. Yeah. Um, yeah, on the vault score, uh, we're going to press like a 100 limited edition vinyl and then release it digitally at the same time. It's going nice. to be a dope. No final. I'm excited about the packaging. Working on that now. to throw out to you is uh what would you say 
is your or you know one of your greatest music accomplishments man the song pistol dave stands out i'm, I'm very proud of pistol dave yeah it was an epic beardman song mm-hmm. uh that started as a um a, f- a freestyle we were driving through pennsylvania and we drove past this tourist attraction called the crystal cave and francis yeah. was freestyling at the wheel and he said i go to the crystal cave and see pistol dave and everyone just started laughing we're like who the fuck is pistol dave <laughs> and uh pistol dave just became like a tour joke and we started we would just see like people out of control a while and out and uh, pistol dave there he goes that's pistol dave and uh in time, it morphed into this joke. Actually, we were, we were at the French Fest, and Francis started started saying Dave, like from the Slick Rick song, Children's Story. He goes, Dave, the dope fiend shooting dope who don't know the meaning of what to know. So, and so he was saying Dave, and we were just laughing about it. And then it became a song. He wrote this song called, he wrote a verse about Pistol Dave, and he was basically like this shitbag truck driver that, we allow, and he was like an amalgamation of all the scummy characters we'd ever been around on tour. And, okay. and so it was just like this legendary guy who had, you know, offered to drive the bus, but then, and, and we've had some nightmare bus drivers, bus drivers in particular, <laughs> they tend to be a real like wild eyed, like, they, like he had his computer on his lap and he was on Facebook while he was driving when everyone was asleep. <laughs> you can't do that. You got to talk to him. And, uh, yeah, yeah, we've had some drivers, man. And uh, so they all kind of became Pistol Dave in this song. And then uh, on the hook, I was imagining, I was like, man, we need like a soulful, like 70s porn soundtrack singer. And in my head, I was hearing Blue Raspberry, who sung on a bunch of the early Wu-Tang records. And I was talking to uh, Vertigo, uh, another Providence um, engineer uh-huh. and I was like man we need someone like Blue Raspberry and he was like you know you can just tweet at Blue Raspberry right she's still working and I was like oh oh yeah <laughs> and uh, so we got Blue Raspberry on the hook from my like my 12 year old like Method Man tape fantasy um, on a song with Blue Raspberry she's yeah. singing about Pistol Dave the, the musically I'm really really proud of where we took it because it started out as like a kind of simplistic loop that we then built out with like strings and horns and blue raspberry killing it and then for the third verse francis i one day said to francis i was like what do you think about asking slug to come in in the third verse and be pistol dave like we've talked so much about pistol dave what if (laughs) pistol dave appears in the third verse and it's slug and uh, he was like, you know that's weird i was thinking the same exact thing (laughs) uh, so we asked slug and he killed it uh, and then made a great animated video for it that even took the song to like a, a new place. This incredible French animator named Wasaru animated it all and it premiered on Adult Swim. It's an epic story of an imaginary guy named Dave. Yeah. yeah and, it's like a caricature, you know, like you can see the character. I've seen the video. It's yeah. Like, even as you're bringing it back, I'm like I know what that guy looks like, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's a movie. It's a legit <laughs> movie. So Epic Beardman Pistol Dave is what I'm hanging my hat on right now <laughs> and forever. Cool. Uh, thank you so much, Beagle. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dave, the ex-con driving old trucks. Don't give a flying fuck if you're sober or drunk. Just move the hell over, punk. Hurry up, go. Dave threw a big gulp out the window. There's a pair of testicles hanging off the back bumper. Where's the dick sitting in the driver's seat, brother? Dave.
passed out in the bathroom of some girl's house. When he came to, he was still in a daze. He said, what to do on Pistol Dave? Dave, the codeine freak with lower back pain Always knows a guy who knows a guy from back in the day Always like, hey, I knew your pops growing up it Looks like the fart doesn't fall far from the butt Tell your mom to say what up Ask your nana how lesbians make love Hey, when can we take drugs? The dope fiends shooting dopes Who don't know the meaning of homie nor a bloke He said, I got bullets, hurry up, run Way too many triggers for a man with one gun He said, it's no fun being on work release I'd rather work Peace, peace, be back in a minute, don't leave But like my dad, don't expect him back When he goes to smokes, legend has it I'm still waiting for Dave and Park Slope